Hello, and welcome to this joint podcast of A View from the Bench, a podcast about my experiences and perceptions in the courtroom dealing with the trial of major cases over a legal career spanning almost five decades, and my podcast on Honor and Courage, a podcast about the renewal and reawakening of American excellence. I'm your host, Albert McKegg, and I will be posting this podcast into both series. This is a podcast I don't want to do and one you don't want to hear. Frankly, this is a podcast that should go viral, but it won't unless you listen, absorb, and then share this with everyone you know. Today, we will be talking about child sexual abuse. You may want to avoid having to listen to something like this, but I encourage you to stay with me. All around us, we see sexual abuse of children, child exploitation, and the human trafficking of children. We, as a just nation, must be informed about this continuing and destructive tragedy. I won't be going into graphic details, but these are tough cases to hear, so I wanted to warn you about the content before we get started. And before we get started, and because I still sit as a senior state district judge, I need to give a disclosure. In these episodes, I will not be giving a legal opinion on the law, but merely my impression of how certain laws fit certain fact situations. Also, nothing said in this podcast is intended to show or predict how I will rule on either current or future cases. The Judicial Code of Ethics prohibits my commenting on cases pending in my court or criticizing the actions of other trial judges. All cases that I discuss have been disposed of, and I no longer have any jurisdiction or authority over those cases. In this episode, I will be discussing some of the criminal laws in Texas, but this should not be taken as my rendering of a legal opinion. With those disclosures out of the way, let's talk about today's subject. As a prosecutor, defense attorney, and now as a trial judge, I have personally been involved in about 75 or more cases dealing with some form of sexual abuse of a child. These cases have ranged from simple sexual contact with the child through the clothing all the way up to and including long-term continuous acts of sexual intercourse with children and adolescents. This will be a tough subject today, and I understand that many of you may want to pass on this. Again, though, before you shut me down, if you are a parent, a grandparent, uncle, aunt, teacher, Sunday school leader, or a person with any kind of contact with children, you really need to settle down and listen to this. I don't say that casually either, because when you hear the statistics on sexual abuse of children, I can guarantee you that someone you know, or maybe someone you love dearly, is now or will be a victim of child sexual abuse. We adults have a duty to understand how and be ready to appropriately respond when we find out about sexual abuse of a child. Honor requires that we do something and not turn away from obvious signs that we may see or suspect. Courage, and I mean moral courage, requires us to act. It is my hope and prayer that you won't have to be involved in such a situation, but my experience and research tells me otherwise. This episode is really only an introduction to what has become a national tragedy among our children. It won't make you an expert, and frankly, even with all my experience, I'm not an expert. But I've listened to many experts in this area, heard many cases go through the criminal justice system and the jury trials, and I do have a working knowledge of the subject of child sexual abuse cases. There are some harsh realities when dealing with these kinds of cases. First, there are rarely, if ever any, witnesses to a child sex case. 
Think about that for a moment. There is only the perpetrator and the child who know what is really going on. These crimes don't usually take place where there may be anyone around to find the two together. In very rare cases, the crime may happen in a place where others are present, such as in a public building or in the home. Those public place attacks usually involve a true child predator and involve targets of opportunity. But usually, these events take place in the home or a comfortable environment for the child, and usually with people the child knows very well. Once the child victim has become a regular participant in the continued exploitation and grooming by a predator, the exploitation continues almost on its own. Only in the rarest of cases will another person walk in when the event is taking place, and even then rationalizations or excuses by the perpetrator may cover the perpetrator's actions. In contrary to common thought or opinions, most sexual abuse of a child cases happen with someone the child knows and is very familiar with. Certainly, there are instances of predators stalking public parks and other public venues looking for children, but those are actually rare in the grand scheme of these kinds of cases. The age of the child victim also has a great deal of influence on whether the perpetrator will get away with the crime. Especially young children, generally five or six years of age and younger, will not understand what is going on or that what's taking place is wrong. These children usually respond to an adult perpetrator as being all-wise and all-powerful. They don't recognize exploitation like an older child or an adolescent would. Grooming is a word you need to understand and become familiar with. Grooming takes place in all kinds of scenarios, but almost always with someone the child has met, the child knows, and is someone the child is comfortable being around. It can and does happen over social media. In fact, instances of social media grooming on preteens and teens is getting fairly common. Entire legal task forces have been deployed to seek out and take down these social media groomers. This is one area in which parental oversight is so important. Don't assume your 13 or 14-year-old child is too innocent to get involved in such things because I assure you they are not too young and they are certainly not too young for you to have some very pointed conversations with them about these issues. Grooming is the actions taken by a predator to bring the child into a comfortable but intimate relationship with the predator, usually through showing favoritism, the giving of gifts, and having special secrets between the two. Sometimes when the bribes don't work, the perpetrator will resort to threats, both implied and overt, often against the child or someone the child loves, such as a mother or a sibling. It's important for parents to make it clear to their very young children that they cannot have secrets with other adults or even older children that they're around. To do that, you have to talk to those children so that they understand the concept of trust. The word grooming has become synonymous with sexual abuse of children, not only in legal circles, but in medicine and mental health. High-profile cases, such as the allegations by members of the U.S. women's gymnastics team, have raised public awareness of how grooming can go unnoticed and unreported for months or even years. To stop grooming before it takes place, we have to fully understand what it is and how it happens. Over time, investigations have uncovered patterns and behavior and specific techniques used by predators to gain access to and the compliance of child victims. That's part of grooming. 
Grooming is generally a nonviolent technique used by sexual predators who are not strangers but known to their victims. Groomers place themselves in roles that allow them access to children, such as club leaders, caregivers, teachers. I've had cases against YMCA counselors, church leaders of various kinds, daycare providers, teachers, coaches, and others in positions where we would normally be very trusting of them. Certainly not all of those people are predators or even potential predators, and most organizations and churches take great pains to identify and eliminate those kinds of people. The grooming process involves normal adult-child interactions, such as playing games, buying gifts, and trips to the park. On the surface, those behaviors would not necessarily flag any concerns. And as I said, most of those people are good, sincere people only working in the best interest of children. But offenders generally take a lot of time and effort to develop relationships, getting into intimate positions, and learning about their victims' vulnerabilities, likes, and interests. They use this knowledge to gain and maintain control and trust, and then slowly introduce sexual content and physical contact to the child. Grooming is aimed at creating long-lasting sexual relationships while preventing the likelihood of disclosure by the child victim. Victims are often manipulated to acquiesce in the abuse. Many grooming victims, as they get older and figure out what is really going on, have reported feelings of shame or guilt about complying with the predator, which stopped them from disclosing even when they became aware of the wrongness of the actions, and they continued participating with the groomer in those illegal actions. The key to grooming is a power dynamic within the relationship involving age, gender, physical strength, economic status, or another similar factor. The common aspect is that a perpetrator manipulates a victim by building trust and rapport. What constitutes a child sex case anyway? Under Texas law, Indecency with the child by contact means any touching of the genitals, anus, or breast of another person with intent to arouse the sexual gratification of a person. The touching can be through the clothing or under the clothing. Touching or rubbing is all that is required for this level of offense. The touching can be of the child by the perpetrator or of the perpetrator by the child. It is a second-degree felony in Texas, punishable from 2 to 20 years in prison and a fine. If the perpetrator has never been convicted of a felony, they may also be eligible for probation for up to 10 years plus a fine. There are very rare cases where probation is appropriate, and I'll cover some of those cases in another episode. Sexual assault of a child is the next level up. It involves some form of penetration of the genitals or anus of the child with any object, such as a male genitalia, a finger, a tongue, or an object. For example, inserting the perpetrator's penis into the mouth of a child is sexual assault of a child. Any penetration, however slight, is sufficient to charge this level of offense. Punishment is up to life in prison and a fine. Continuous sexual abuse of a child is punishable by not less than 25 years nor more than life in prison. The circumstances require that at least two or more of the forms of indecency or sexual assault of a child take place over a period of more than 30 days. It could be continuous indecency, continuous sexual assault, or a combination of both. And it usually is a combination. And it could include any type of the contact or penetration together.
Finally, if a defendant has been convicted of a child sex crime at least one time before the present case and is then convicted a second time, the punishment is an automatic life sentence, and it's well justified. These are the true sexual predators and are truly the most dangerous as they have been involved with one or more children over a long period of time. In most cases, the abuse increases in kind and frequency the longer it goes on, and it could go on for years before the child or children makes an outcry or the perpetrator slips up and is caught. There are many reasons why a child will not make an outcry immediately after the first sexual encounter with a sexual predator. The child, because of age or lack of knowledge, may not understand that what took place is wrong. The perpetrator may make a special pact with the child to keep a secret in return for bribes and gifts or special treatment and special favors. Threats may be employed. Both threats against the child or threats against someone the child loves, such as a parent or a sibling. The reasons are as varied as the cases in which they take place. I've seen situations where a young child is molested for years and finally through training at school or talking with friends, they understand what is taking place and an outcry is made. Sometimes a good friend of the child finds out and tells his or her parent or a teacher and the process of disclosure starts. A child under stress or angry about something entirely unrelated may blurt out something to another adult That triggers a partial outcry. There is no one formula, although once the outcry process is started, there are certain known processes that seem to come about. Generally speaking, the investigation into child sex cases starts with an outcry, that being some form of disclosure by the child victim. Initially, the disclosure may be only a partial outcry, with the child testing the water, so to speak, to see how the adult takes the news. It is absolutely essential that the adult hearing the initial outcry not try to coach the child, not be outwardly disbelieving or emotional about the situation. Parents and grandparents, you really need to steady your nerves and be very calm if this happens with your child. I know that's hard, but you really need to think about it. This is obviously very hard to do, but the outcry process for a child is very emotional, not only for the child, but for the person hearing it, and it is filled with opportunities to mess up the subsequent trial of the predator. There are especially trained forensic interviewers who can and should be the ones involved in getting the whole story out of the child. They do that through open-ended, non-directive questions intended to allow the child to speak in his or her own voice and in their own way, in their own words. Police rarely do those initial interviews as most officers are now well-trained to not go down that trail with the child but to get the professionals involved quickly. The person who hears the child's first disclosure is called an outcry witness. Texas courts and, frankly, other states' courts have provided clear definitions of what role an outcry witness can play in proving allegations of sexual abuse of a young child. There is a law in Texas called the Outcry Statute. It creates an exception to the hearsay rule in cases involving allegations of sexual assault of a child who is younger than 14 years of age. Under that statute, a trial court may admit a child victim's out-of-court hearsay statements that describe the alleged abuse suffered by the child, provided that such statements were made to the first adult person to whom the child made a statement regarding the offensive conduct. 
To understand why hearsay statements are normally not allowed in court, hearsay is an out-of-court statement made by someone to another person and repeated in court as proof of the matters being stated. As you can see, it could be an opinion of what was said or a total misstatement of what is said. Since the statement was made out of court, there is no way to cross-examine the statement. So in most cases, hearsay is not allowed to be used in court. The outcry statute provides an exception to that normal hearsay rule. There may be more than one outcry witness, provided that each witness testifies about different sexual events pertaining to the child. For example, the child may tell the first witness about some kind of sexual contact to test the water, so to speak. Then, when a professional interview is taking place, the child may disclose much greater detail and more events, such as penetration. This is actually fairly common. An outcry witness should be over the age of 18 and be the person with whom the child victim first spoke about the offensive conduct. Usually, as a result of the information given by the child to the outcry witness, either the police or Child Protective Services will be contacted and the investigation begun. In most cases, that's when the trained forensic interviewer at an approved child assessment center, called a CAC, will be contacted to conduct the interview. As required by law, the trial court will hold a hearing outside of the jury's presence to address whether the outcry statements to the outcry witness or forensic interviewer were reliable and whether that person or persons could be designated as an outcry witness. This process may seem complicated, but it is designed so that the accuracy of the child's out-of-court statements can be tested and verified before the jury hears about them. In most cases, with child victims over the age of 14, the outcry witness will not be needed because the child or adolescent can testify directly about what happened. In a few cases I've seen where there were developmentally challenged children, the outcry witness is still allowed, but those cases are very fact-dependent. Often, there will also be medical professionals who are involved in child sex cases, including doctors, sexual assault nurse examiners, called a SANE, pediatricians, and others. Generally speaking, information received from a child victim as part of a medical diagnosis and examination is admissible as an exception to the hearsay rule. One thing of importance in these types of cases is that the dates of the events are often very uncertain. Children don't generally keep up with days, weeks, or months like adults do. Children relate to such events as birthdays, vacations, Christmas, being in school or out of school, after school, before school, and other such broad terms. Often, young children are simply unable to identify the exact date of the abuse that they've endured. Specifying a date in an indictment is not necessarily about the accuracy of the date noted, but merely to show that the statute of limitations on the offense has not run. There is no mandate that the state prove exact dates of the occurrences for children. Most of what I've covered so far is based on my own experiences from having been involved in so many child sex cases throughout my legal career. This next information, however, comes primarily from Dr. Elizabeth Yeglick, that's J-E-G-L-I-C, who is a clinical psychologist and a professor of psychology at John Jay College. She studies sexual violence prevention, particularly dealing with children. 
Her research suggests that disclosure of childhood sexual abuse is a very complex process, and many victims are very reluctant or even incapable of reporting their victimization in a timely way. You would think that a child suffering such abuse couldn't wait to tell someone, but that just isn't the case. Dr. Yeglick's research is in complete agreement with my own observations in the justice system and in the courtroom. Accordingly, most victims of child sexual assault delay disclosure, sometimes even into adolescence or adulthood, or they don't report it at all. For instance, one study of the general population found that over 22% of women and almost 10% of men reported a history of child sexual assault during their survey interview. Most child sexual assault victims in their sample delayed disclosure from anywhere between 3 to 18 years, with only a bit over 21% disclosing within one month of the abuse. Importantly, these results indicated that about one in five child sexual assault victims never disclosed their abuse at all until the survey interview. In the jury selection process that I've observed so many times, a question may be asked of the entire jury panel of those who have personally experienced or had a close family member experience some form of sexual abuse. Easily, a third or up to even half of a jury panel of 60 to 80 people will raise their hands. As jurors look around to see so many hands, other hands get raised. It is amazing to see how much of the population has suffered some form of sexual abuse, much of it as a child. Another study by the researcher of 76 young adult females with a mean age of 21 years who experienced child sexual assault on average 10 years earlier revealed that in nearly half of the cases, the victims never disclosed their sexual abuse experience to anyone prior to the research interview. In 53% of the cases, the victim told a social support about the abuse, while only about 10% disclosed formally to authorities. Social supports are generally family and very close friends. Keep in mind that all too often, the perpetrator is a family member or close friend of the family. While prompt and formal child sexual assault disclosure to social support sources like family and friends is very low, research suggests that an even smaller percentage of cases is brought to the attention of the authorities, such as police or CPS. That means, in broad terms, that the family member doesn't do anything about the outcry that they're hearing. An analysis of 217 published studies found rates of self-reported victimization of child sexual assault to be 127 in 1,000 people, which is 30 times higher than the rate based on studies that relied on official child sexual assault reports to authorities, such as police or CPS, which is only about 4 out of 1,000. These findings show that a child sexual assault is not only way underdisclosed, but also way underreported. Moreover, the difference between rates of informal disclosure and formal reporting suggests that a large number of informal victim disclosures result in so-called dead-end disclosures that are never brought to the attention of authorities, and so the perpetrator cannot be prosecuted. Research has identified multiple internal and external barriers that prevent disclosure of child sexual assault in a timely fashion. The most identified Internal barriers are shame, guilt, self-blame caused by the abuse, fear for self and others if the abuse is disclosed, that's usually due to threats, 
The child's developmental level may prevent them from fully comprehending that the abusive behavior was wrong or inappropriate and thus delay or prevent disclosure. Other barriers to disclosure include threats or force by the perpetrator or the presence of sexual grooming behaviors, as I covered earlier. Also, there may be a lack of an opportunity to report. Several characteristics of the perpetrator and the child have consistently been linked to delays in disclosure. Children whose perpetrator is a family member or close acquaintance are significantly more reluctant to come forward with their abuse compared with when the perpetrator is a stranger. We've heard the expression stranger danger. Well, it doesn't usually apply in these types of cases. Studies have consistently found that delays in disclosure result when the perpetrator is a family member. Younger victims and male victims are significantly less likely to tell someone about their abuse. Several studies have examined factors that help children disclose the abuse and found that children who participated in sexual abuse prevention programs were more likely to disclose sexual abuse. Children who were routinely asked by a friend or family member about contact were also more likely to report. Knowing that the adult will support them no matter what decreased the child's fear about reporting. That's why it is so very important for adults hearing a disclosure to remain calm and not press the child to tell more than they have until the trained examiner can take over. Given that it is estimated that 1 in 4 girls and 1 in 13 boys experience child sexual abuse before they reach the age of 18, it is important to understand that disclosure of child sexual abuse is very complex and we all should facilitate disclosure when possible in order to to provide abused children with supportive interventions and enable the prosecution of the perpetrators. These are tough subjects to talk about, but we must be prepared to have those conversations with our children, even as young as four or five years old. Yes, the subject and conversation should be age-appropriate, but the idea of what is private to the child or the idea of keeping secrets with others should be covered. I truly hope you never have to deal with these issues, but as I said, my experience tells me otherwise, so be ready. As I said at the beginning, I didn't want to do this podcast, and I know you didn't enjoy hearing it, but I'm thankful that you have. Now be courageous and share it with everyone you know. This podcast should go viral, but it won't unless you share it. So thank you in advance for doing that. I'll see you next time right here. Until then, may God bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and give you peace.